Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Law School of America. Vicarious liability is a form of a strict, secondary liability that arises under the common law doctrine of agency, respondeat superior, the responsibility of the superior for the acts of their subordinate or, in a broader sense, the responsibility of any third party that had the right, ability or duty to control the activities of a violator. It can be distinguished from contributory liability, another form of secondary liability which is rooted in the tort theory of enterprise liability because, unlike contributory infringement, knowledge is not an element of vicarious liability. The law has developed the view that some relationships by their nature require the person who engages others to accept responsibility for the wrongdoing of those others. The most important such relationship for practical purposes is that of employer and employee. Employer's Liability Employers are vicariously liable, under the respondeat superior doctrine, for negligent acts or omissions by their employees in the course of employment, sometimes referred to as scope and course of employment. To determine whether the employer is liable, the difference between an independent contractor and an employee is to be drawn. In order to be vicariously liable, there must be a requisite relationship between the defendant and the tortfeasor, which could be examined by three tests, control test, organization test, and sufficient relationship test. An employer may be held liable under principles of vicarious liability if an employee does an authorized act in an unauthorized way. Employers may also be liable under the common law principle represented in the Latin phrase, qui facet per alium facet per se, one who acts through another acts in one's own interests. That is a parallel concept to vicarious liability and strict liability, in which one person is held liable in criminal law or tort for the acts or omissions of another. In Australia, the sufficient relationship test, entailing the balancing of several factors such as skill levels required in the job, pay schemes, and degree of control granted to the worker, has been the favored approach. For an act to be considered within the course of employment, it must either be authorized or be so connected with an authorized act that it can be considered a mode, though an improper mode, of performing it. Courts sometimes distinguish between an employee's detour versus a frolic of their own. For instance, an employer will be held liable if it is shown that the employee had gone on a mere detour in carrying out their duties, such as stopping to buy a beverage or use an automated teller machine while running a work-related errand, whereas an employee acting in his or her own right rather than on the employer's business is undertaking a frolic and will not subject the employer to liability. Principles Liability The owner of an automobile can be held vicariously liable for negligence committed by a person to whom the car has been lent as if the owner was a principal and the driver his or her agent, if the driver is using the car primarily for the purpose of performing a task for the owner. Courts have been reluctant to extend this liability to the owners of other kinds of chattel. For example, the owner of a plane will not be vicariously liable for the actions of a pilot to whom he or she has lent it to perform the owner's purpose. In the United States, vicarious liability for automobiles has since been abolished with respect to car leasing and rental in all 50 states. One example is in the case of a bank, finance company or other lien holder performing a repossession of an automobile from the registered owner for non-payment, 
the lienholder has a non-delegable duty not to cause a breach of the peace in performing the repossession, or it will be liable for damages even if the repossession is performed by an agent. This requirement means that whether a repossession is performed by the lienholder or by an agent, the repossessor must not cause a breach of the peace or the lienholder will be held responsible. This requirement not to breach the peace is held upon the lienholder even if the breach is caused by, say, the debtor's objection to the repossession or resisting the repossession. In the court case of M. Bank El Paso v. Sanchez, where a hired repossessor towed away a car even after the registered owner locked herself in it, the court decided that this was an unlawful breach of the peace and declared the repossession invalid. The debtor was also awarded $1,200,000 in damages from the bank. However, notably, a breach of the peace will invariably constitute a criminal misdemeanor. Criminal law imparts separate and distinct liability upon each actor considered a person under the law, and therefore a corporation and the corporation's employee may both be charged with having committed exactly the same crime, in addition to any civil liability for which the law imposes. Parental liability. In the United States, the question of parental responsibility generally follows the common law principle that a parent is not civilly liable for injuries resulting from a child's negligence merely because of the parent-child relationship. When a child causes an injury, parents may be held liable for their own negligent acts, such as failure to properly supervise a child, or failure to keep a dangerous instrument such as a handgun outside the reach of their children. Many states have also passed laws that impose some liability on parents for the intentional wrongful acts committed by their minor children. Liability of Corporations in Tort In English law, a corporation can only act through its employees and agents so it is necessary to decide in which circumstances the law of agency or vicarious liability will apply to hold the corporation liable in tort for the frauds of its directors or senior officers. If liability for the particular tort requires a state of mind, then to be liable, the director or senior officer must have that state of mind and it must be attributed to the company. In Meridian Global Funds Management Asia Limited v. Securities Commission, two employees of the company, acting within the scope of their authority but unknown to the directors, used company funds to acquire some shares. The question was whether the company knew, or ought to have known, that it had acquired those shares. The Privy Council held that it did. Whether by virtue of their actual or ostensible authority as agents acting within their authority, referred to Lord V. Grace, Smith and Company, or as employees acting in the course of their employment, referred to Armagas Limited v. Mundagas S.A., their acts and omissions and their knowledge could be attributed to the company, and this could give rise to liability as joint tort feasors where the directors have assumed responsibility on their own behalf and not just on behalf of the company. So if a director or officer is expressly authorized to make representations of a particular class on behalf of the company, and fraudulently makes a representation of that class to a third party causing loss, the company will be liable even though the particular representation was an improper way of doing what he was authorized to do. The extent of authority is a question of fact and is significantly more than the fact of an employment which gave the employee the opportunity to carry out the fraud. In Panorama Developments, Guilford, Limited v. Fidelis Furnishing Fabrics Limited, a company secretary fraudulently hired cars for his own use without the knowledge of the managing director. A company secretary routinely enters into contracts in the company's name and has administrative responsibilities that would give apparent authority to hire cars. Hence, the company was liable. Employees continued liability and indemnity. A common misconception involves the liability of the employee for tortious acts committed within the scope and authority of their employment. 
Although the employer is liable under respondeat superior for the employee's conduct, the employee, too, remains jointly liable for the harm caused. As the American Law Institute's Restatement of the Law of Agency, 3rd Section 7.01 states, An agent is subject to liability to a third party harmed by the agent's tortious conduct. Unless an applicable statute provides otherwise, an actor remains subject to liability although the actor acts as an agent or an employee, with actual or apparent authority, or within the scope of employment. Every American state follows this same rule. The question of indemnification arises when either solely the employee or solely the employer is sued. If only the employee is sued, then that employee may seek indemnification from the employer if the conduct was within the course and scope of their employment. If only the employer is sued, then the employer can attempt to avoid liability by claiming the employee's conduct was outside of the scope of the employee's authority, but the employer generally cannot sue the employee to recover indemnification for the employee's torts. For an example of a court confirming an employer's right to sue an employee for indemnification, see the case of Lister v. Romford Ice and Cold Storage Company Limited. Ecclesiastical Corporations In the 2003 decision Doe v. Bennett, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that in cases of abuse scandals involving Catholic priests, liability derives from the power and authority over parishioners that the Church gave to its clergymen. The last clear chance doctrine of tort law is applicable to negligence cases in jurisdictions that apply rules of contributory negligence in lieu of comparative negligence. Under this doctrine, a negligent plaintiff can nonetheless recover if he is able to show that the defendant had the last opportunity to avoid the accident. Though the stated rationale has differed depending on the jurisdiction adopting the doctrine, the underlying idea is to mitigate the harshness of the contributory negligence rule. Conversely, a defendant can also use this doctrine as a defense. If the plaintiff has the last clear chance to avoid the accident, the defendant will not be liable. The restatement, second, of Dortz explains the doctrine in detail as follows. Section 479. Last clear chance, helpless plaintiff. A plaintiff who has negligently subjected himself to a risk of harm from the defendant's subsequent negligence may recover for harm caused thereby if, immediately preceding the harm. a. The plaintiff is unable to avoid it by the exercise of reasonable vigilance and care, and b. The defendant is negligent in failing to utilize with reasonable care and competence his then existing opportunity to avoid the harm, when he I, knows of the plaintiff's situation and realizes or has reason to realize the peril involved in it or 2. Would discover the situation and thus have reason to realize the peril, if he were to exercise the vigilance which it is then his duty to the plaintiff to exercise. Section 480. Last clear chance, inattentive plaintiff. A plaintiff who, by the exercise of reasonable vigilance, could discover the danger created by the defendant's negligence in time to avoid the harm to him can recover if, but only if, the defendant a. knows of the plaintiff's situation, and b. realizes or has reason to realize that the plaintiff is inattentive and therefore unlikely to discover his peril in time to avoid the harm, and c. thereafter is negligent in failing to utilize with reasonable care and competence his then existing opportunity to avoid the harm. The introduction of the doctrine is widely attributed to the English case of Davis v. Mann, 152 Ang. Rep. 588, 1842. Now a word from our sponsor. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and, 6-1 since that matters, and, what do I even say other than, hey? 
Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Law School of America. Neutral reportage is a common law defense against libel and defamation lawsuits usually involving the media republishing unproven accusations about public figures. It is a limited exception to the common law rule that one who repeats a defamatory statement is just as guilty as the first person who published it. Defendants using the defense can claim that they are not implying the offending statement is true but simply reporting, in a neutral manner, that the potentially libelous statements were made, even if they doubt the accuracy of the statement. For the defense to succeed, it is almost always required for the reporting to be unbiased and in the public interest. History In U.S. defamation law it is traditional for a court to consider the publishing and republishing of defamatory statements indistinguishable on the grounds that the republished statements have potential to cause as much harm to a person as the original publication. The doctrine of neutral reportage was established on the basis that the press should not be liable for republishing allegations made by a responsible speaker about public figures providing it is done in a neutral manner and is newsworthy. Edwards v. National Law Dubon Society The case of Edwards v. National Law Dubon Society in 1977 is largely recognized as the first major case in which the idea of neutral reporting was used. The case concerned the reporting of a dispute between the National Audubon Society and a group of scientists that it had accused of being paid to lie by pesticide companies regarding the effects of pesticides on birds. The New York Times, while attempting to report both sides of the dispute, was sued by several of the scientists. A federal appellate court recognized that the reporting was both neutral and in the public interest. United States Law The neutral reportage privilege has not been widely adopted by all states and courts. U.S. District Judge Marilyn Patel stated that there is a great deal of inconsistency among state court decisions in 2006, during the case of McCall v. Courier-Journal, the Kentucky Supreme Court rejected the defense stating it had not been approved by the U.S. Supreme Court, which in turn refused to review the case. In 2004, Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled that neither the Pennsylvania Constitution nor the United States Constitution provided such a defense. These two states together with Michigan. New York and California have rejected the defense while Florida is among the few states that has accepted it. Whereas in Illinois one appellate court recognized the principle and another did not demonstrate the inconsistency of the defense even within the same state. United Kingdom Law In the United Kingdom, the defense is often known as the Reynolds defense after a 1994 case, where the Irish Taoiseach Albert Reynolds sued the Sunday Times over an article claiming he had misled Parliament. The case was a landmark in British libel law after the House of Lords decided in 1997 to allow the media to plead the Reynolds defense meaning they could print potential libel if they could prove that it is in the public interest and responsible. According to the libel book Gatley on Libel and Slander it extends at least to the attributed and neutral reporting of allegations and counter-allegations by parties to a political dispute in which the public has a legitimate interest. Notable Cases while the validity of the defense is questioned, it has been used successfully in some cases while in others the defendants have failed to convince judges that they are protected by the defense. Failures Troy Publishing Company v. Norton, 2005 Khalidic Balkawar v. Globe International Incorporated, George Galloway MP v. Telegraph Group Limited. Successes Edwards v. National Law Dubon Society, 1977 Al Fega v. H. H. Saudi Research and Marketing, UK, Limited, 
2001. Christopher and Barry Roberts v. Searchlight Magazine. Global Relief Foundation vs. Multiple Defendants All Reporters or News Organizations Including New York Times, ABC, Boston Globe and Associated Press. Watson v. Leach, 1996, newspaper report that a state auditor accused a town trustee of faking a snow emergency to gain access to emergency funds. Celebrisi v. Netsley, 1988, a newspaper report that a political campaign brochure accused the county's Italian-American judges of having mafia connections. McCracken v. Gainesville Tribune Incorporated, 1978, a land developer calling another developer unscrupulous during a town meeting. Barbara Schwartz v. The Salt Lake Tribune. In May 2003 The Salt Lake Tribune, of Salt Lake City, Utah, published an article entitled SL Woman's Quest Strains Public Records System Documenting Salt Lake City Resident Barbara Schwartz's Extensive Pursuit of FOIA Records. Schwartz sued the Tribune claiming that the Tribune's use of yellow journalism resulted in malicious defamation, emotional abuse and was accomplished by deceiving her into giving an interview, unauthorized use of her photo, violation of privacy, refusing to print a correction or letter to the editor, in addition to theft of approximately 100 photos and negatives. In its ruling the three-member court stated, the public interest in being fully informed about controversies that often rage around sensitive issues demands that the press be afforded the freedom to report such charges without assuming responsibility for them. Judge James C. Davis further wrote that the Tribune article was protected by the neutral reportage privilege because it contains accurate and disinterested reporting of the information contained in the record. Her suit was dismissed and her appeals denied. The eggshell rule, also thin skull rule or talum qualum rule is a well-established legal doctrine in common law, used in some tort law systems, with a similar doctrine applicable to criminal law. The rule states that, in a tort case, the unexpected frailty of the injured person is not a valid defense to the seriousness of any injury caused to them. Law. This rule holds that a tortfeasor is liable for all consequences resulting from their tortious, usually negligent, activities leading to an injury to another person even if the victim suffers an unusually high level of damage, for example due to a pre-existing vulnerability or medical condition. The eggshell skull rule takes into account the physical, social, and economic attributes of the plaintiff which might make them more susceptible to injury. It may also take into account the family and cultural environment. The term implies that if a person had a skull as delicate as that of the shell of an egg, and a tortfeasor who was unaware of the condition injured that person's head, causing the skull unexpectedly to break, the defendant would be held liable for all damages resulting from the wrongful contact, even if the tortfeasor did not intend to cause such a severe injury. In criminal law, the general maxim is that the defendant must take their victims as they find them, as echoed in the judgment of Lord Justice Lawton in R. V. Plowa, 1975, in which the defendant was held responsible for killing his victim, despite his contention that her refusal of a blood transfusion constituted an intervening act. The doctrine is applied in all areas of torts, intentional torts, negligence, and strict liability cases, as well as in criminal law. There is no requirement of physical contact with the victim, if a trespasser's wrongful presence on the victim's property so terrifies the victim that he has a fatal heart attack, the trespasser will be liable for the damages stemming from his original tort. The foundation for this rule is based primarily on policy grounds. The courts do not want the defendant or accused to rely on the victim's own vulnerability to avoid liability. The thin skull rule is not to be confused with the related crumbling skull rule in which the plaintiff suffers from a detrimental position, from a prior injury, for instance, 
pre-existent to the occurrence of the present dort. In the crumbling skull rule, the prior condition is only to be considered with respect to distinguishing it from any new injury arising from the present tort, as a means of apportioning damages in such a way that the defendant would not be liable for placing the plaintiff in a better position than they were in prior to the present tort. Example In an example, a person who has osteogenesis imperfecta, OI, also known as brittle bone syndrome, is more likely to be injured in a motor vehicle accident. If the person with OI is hit from behind in a motor vehicle collision and suffers medical damages, such as clavicle fracture, it would not be a valid defense to state that the osteogenesis imperfecta was the cause of the fracture. Case Illustrations In the 1962 English case of Smith v. Leach Brain and Company, an employee in a factory was splashed with molten metal. The metal burned him on his lip, which happened to be premalignant tissue. He died three years later from cancer triggered by the injury. The judge held that as long as the initial injury was foreseeable, the defendant was liable for all the harm. In 1891, the Wisconsin Supreme Court came to a similar result in Vosburg v. Putney. In that case, a boy kicked another from across the aisle in the classroom. It turned out that the victim had an unknown microbial condition that was irritated, and resulted in him entirely losing the use of his leg. No one could have predicted the level of injury. Nevertheless, the court found that the kicking was unlawful because it violated the order and decorum of the classroom, and the perpetrator was therefore fully liable for the injury. In Ben v. Thomas, the appellate court determined that the eggshell rule should have been applied to a case in which a man had a heart attack and died after being bruised in the chest during a rear-end car accident. In the Australian case of Nader v. Urban Transit Authority of NSW, the plaintiff was a 10-year-old boy who struck his head on a bus stop pole while alighting from a slowly moving bus. He developed a rare psychological condition known as cancer syndrome. The defendant argued that the illness resulted from his family's response to the accident. McHugh Jaw said, at 537, the defendant must take the plaintiff with all his weaknesses, beliefs and reactions as well as his capacities and attributes, physical, social and economic. If the result of an accident is that a 10-year-old boy reacts to his parents' concern over his injuries and develops an hysterical condition, no reason of justice, morality or entrenched principle appears to me to prevent his recovery of compensation. In the Australian case of Kavanaugh v. Akhtar, the court held that Dortfeser should take into account the plaintiff's family and cultural setting. Equality before the law puts a heavy onus on the person who would argue that the unusual reaction of an injured plaintiff should be disregarded because a minority religious or cultural situation may not have been foreseeable. Exceptions Intervening cause is typically an exception to the eggshell skull rule. If an injury is not immediate, but a separate situation agitates the injury, such as the injured party being involved in a vehicular collision while being taken to a hospital, the tortfeasor is not liable under common law in Australia. See Hubber v. Walker, and Mahoney v. Krushik demolitions. In Hubber v. Walker it was held that a plaintiff will not be liable for a novus actus interveniens, intervening act, if the chain of causation was broken by a voluntary, human act or, an independent event, which in conjunction with the wrongful act, was so unlikely as to be termed a coincidence. In Mahoney v. Krushik demolitions the plaintiff, Glagovic, was injured while working on the demolition of a powerhouse for the respondent. While being treated for his injuries, his injuries were exacerbated by the negligent medical treatment of the appellant, Mahoney. It was held that there was no novus actus as a result of medical treatment of injuries caused by the defendant's negligence, unless such treatment is inexcusably bad or completely outside the bounds of what a reputable medical practitioner might prescribe. The Law School of America.
This has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation Incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America. Thank you.